done, Diane. That was just so beautiful. And I, uh, you know, I really look at Diane's story as just one of my blessings um, as a pastor. I, I got to watch that journey and watch what God did in her life. And now she, <laughs> she articulates it better than I can. That's so cool. This whole our story thing is so much more than a project. It's about who we want to be as a church. And you heard it right from the heart of Diane. I, I didn't tell her what to say in that video. That was just, this is what's on her heart. This is what she wants to see us be as a church. And that's my heart for us too. We want to have a story for our community and for our family and for our future. So last week, we got into the heart of this. We talked about our physical location, 824 Main Street. Why do we have to have a story for this village, for Osterville? This week, we're going to get into our family, and I thought it would be fun to kick it off with a provocative statement from Jesus. He had a way of doing that from time to time. Um, I'm going to pick up in Matthew chapter 12. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I've been kicking the tires on this translation in my personal devotional life. So let me read it to you. Uh, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking him to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. Whoa. If you're living in this ancient Mediterranean culture at this time, you can actually hear the audible gasps. Did he really just prioritize his disciples over his mother. That's not how things worked back then. Family comes first in all situations. You know the priorities. It's mom, then brothers, then disciples. He just turned everything upside down. Why did he do that? Well, before we answer that, let's read another passage from Jesus on family. This one is now from Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All right. Does Jesus want you to hate your family? No. No. So what is he saying here? Well, I want to suggest that Jesus is calling for a Copernican revolution in your life. If you know the story of Nicholas Copernicus, you know that in this time period, people had an Aristotelian view of the world, meaning planet Earth is at the center of the universe and everything else revolves around it. And then you got this troublemaker, Copernicus, who comes around and he flips everything upside down. He moves astronomy from a geocentric understanding, everything revolves around Earth, to a 
heliocentric understanding. All of the planets in a system revolve around the sun. It is the greater gravitational force. And so everything must revolve around it. In fact, if the planets get off of the gravitational force of the sun, they are heading for a collision course. It's not good. So in other words, in this text, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, I'm the greater gravitational force. I am the S-U-N. Everything about your life, your world must revolve around me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you and yours. I'm at the center of everything. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this Copernican revolution. You see, we tend to limit love and loyalties. We tell ourselves a story. Well, if I love Jesus more, well, then that means I'm going to start loving my family less. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. I am the rising tide that lifts all boats. Do you want to love your family better? Do you want to love your kids more? Do you want to love your spouse more? Do you want to be a better friend? Jesus is saying, the more you love me, the greater your capacity to love others is. That's the Copernican revolution. Now, he takes this same Copernican revolution and he ties it into community. Uh, that's why we have Matthew 12, where he says, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see what he's doing here? He's actually asking us to expand our definition of community. Again, we look at love and loyalties and even family and community as a limited resource I've got to protect me and my own. This is my small circle. I circle the wagons around it. Everything outside of this circle is now suspect, perhaps dangerous. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've got to take that circle. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my people, you've got to broaden it so much larger than what you've done before. You see, the Bible when it's telling us this, it's describing to us what is called thick community. Uh, thick community is like what it sounds. It's a thick network of relationships. Thin community is me and my own. Thin community is just me. Thick community, though, is unpredictable, organic, personal. A thick network of relationships that I find myself in where we know about each other pretty well. We know one another's lives. We know each other's business. We know each other's secrets. It's a place where kids are running around and families are actually raising one another's kids together. It's a community, a system of relationships where you are known, where you matter, where you are loved. This is the kind of community that Jesus calls his followers into. And he says, if you want to be one of mine, you got to go bigger than you and yours. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to the very beginning of here. 
We're looking at verses 42 through 47. And as you listen to this first church, tell me if you hear thick community being described. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now think about this, this thick community. How did this happen? How did these people find their lives aligned in this way? They were formerly strangers, and now they've even moved past being strangers and neighbors to brothers and sisters. Well, here's what happened. We're post-resurrection. The Copernican Revolution is taken in full effect. They have a greater allegiance in their life than themselves or them and their own. It's now Jesus at the center of everything. They have a shared truth that they in common, the gospel message. The blood bonds have been superseded now by the spiritual bonds that they share together. You know, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Beautiful passage, Acts 2, Ephesians 2. You know, I have been in the church my entire life. Literally, my dad's a pastor from the time I'm born, I'm in the church in diapers. I've heard this passage preached numerous times. Acts 2, numerous times. I've preached these passages numerous times. Let me just say this. I've yet to be in a community of believers where we have achieved fully the things that are being described in these passages. Now, this church is beautiful. This church has been the church of my heart since 2010. I've seen God take significant strides in this place, in this direction. But what we're seeing in the scriptures this morning is we could have so much more. We could keep telling a better story as a church family by living in this community together. But let's be honest, the demands of the community in our current culture makes you feel claustrophobic. Okay, we talk a good game, Acts 2, Ephesians 2. Yes, we should love one another. We should live in community together. But do you really want people to know all your business? Do you? 
Do you really want to feel responsible for other people in a thick system of community? Like orphans and widows and wayward teenagers and people with struggles that are different than my struggles? Do we really want this? One author is being very real about thick community. He says this, in these kinds of communities, the social pressure can be slightly overbearing. And I want to suggest that's an understatement. Uh, the intrusiveness, sometimes hard to bear, but the discomfort is worth it because the care and benefits are great. Do you agree with him? Is the discomfort worth it? Well, the Bible says that it is. In fact, as you get into Scripture and it talks about the community, the body of Christ, there's this startling realization that you come to. The realization is that I need you and you need me. I can't go it alone. I can't make this spiritual life work by myself. God designed us in such a way that we actually depend on one another. Paul uses the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12 when he tells us this. He says, our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you, just like the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Well, what do we need each other for? What's God doing in the body as we depend on one another? Well, Paul explains this in Ephesians 4. He says, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Do you sense that deep down in your bones as a believer? If you don't, you'll always have a reason why community isn't quite worth it. You know, someone who really believed this down in his bones is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might remember his story. He died in a concentration camp because he stood for the cause of Christ. He said this, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Have you ever experienced that as a Christian? You read a passage of scripture, and yeah, it speaks to you, and Jesus meets you in that place, but then you're sitting in a circle of believers, and someone says something from the word of God, and you're like, I've never thought of that before. I needed that word for right now so that I could continue growing. We need one another. I've even heard statements like this in the church. I've heard Christians say things like, the, the number one reason that I attend the local church is because the word of God is preached there. Let me ask you, you don't have to answer this out loud. Do you agree with that statement in totality? And I want to say it's only halfway right. Well, how do we get the whole way? 
Well, Paul takes us the whole way in Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, I need more than just the teaching of the Bible. There are some great Bible teachers. You can tune in every week on the radio and receive from them and get the benefits credible books written about the Bible. But what Paul's getting here is it's the Bible lived out within thick community. That's the glory of the church. And as you achieve that, you will grow in Christ in a way that you've never grown in Christ before. But I'm going to be very honest with you this morning. It's the hardest thing that God has ever asked any one of us to do so hard. You remember what we said about love last week? We said it thrives in specificity. So easy to go 60,000 feet in the air with Christianity and say, oh, I love people. While I walk into my local church and hate someone, despise someone that I'm in community with. Doesn't it feel good to say, I love everyone? Isn't it much harder to say, I love the porcupine in my church? Love thrives. The Bible doesn't describe the ideal of loving to us. It tells us to love one another, even when I don't see eye to eye with them, even when I disagree, even when they've hurt me. You know, the Bible never shies away from the messiness of community. No, it lives right in the tension. Paul in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, here's the thing. When you think about community, Paul's saying here that you're going to have to bear with people. You're actually going to experience hurt to such a degree that you're going to have to, in your heart, look the person in the eye who hurt you and forgive them. I want you to be really honest with yourself this morning. Have you ever been hurt by another Christian? I'm hearing some, mm-hmm. I have. Doesn't feel good. How do I do this thick community thing when it can actually be a source of pain to me? Does anyone like pain in the room? I hate pain. I want to avoid it like at all costs. So how do I do this community thing when it could actually be a source of pain to me? Well, Paul, what he's getting at here in Colossians 3 is he's saying, you actually, to do this well, you have to start with yourself. You have to grow as a person. You have to develop and become more mature in the character of Christ. That's what he's describing here. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. That's the character of Christ. You actually have to put it on. And if you're in this same passage, he says there's certain things you have to put off. Like your meanness. 
and your hurtful words and those kinds of things. And between the two, I just want to argue, putting off is so much easier than putting on. Because putting off just means stop being a jerk. Putting on means that I have grown and become a deeper person. I've come to the realization that a part of being in community, and and it's so valuable for me and for the people I'm with, that I'm willing to navigate the riskiness of the jungle of relationships. And it's risky. People will hurt you in community. But it's also true that you need people to heal in community. Deep people understand that there is nothing for them in avoiding community because the consequences of avoidance is isolation, loneliness, surface level relationships. So how do you navigate this? Well, it takes discernment. I recently read a book by a woman and author named Brene Brown and She does a lot of research on vulnerability and shame. She told this powerful little story about her third grade daughter's, Ellen's, understanding of relationships. She went to school and she confided in one of her friends something that had happened to her that was slightly embarrassing earlier in the day. It was a secret between friends. They get to lunchtime, she notices that there is a circle of girls now congregated together looking at her and laughing. And by the end of the day, the secret is now public news to everyone. Devastating. Isn't that sad? You got to start navigating this jungle already in third grade. So she goes home, she's weeping, and I'm a parent. I feel this. As a parent, like my heart just wants to kind of wrap her in and be like, never tell anyone else your secrets ever again. They're all mean. Don't, don't let anyone hurt you. You build up the walls. You protect yourselves. But that would be terrible advice. Because if you do that, you miss out on all the blessings of community. So she uses something that Ellen understands in her world to help her learn to navigate relational trust. She has a teacher, her third grade teacher, who sets up a jar of marbles at the front of the room. And it's a great little system to teach the class to behave. Every time they're collectively good, they get some marbles in the jar. Every time they're collectively bad, take some marbles out. And guess what? When you fill up the jar, you get a pizza party. And I think we need to implement that system here at OBC. So Brown then says to her daughter, you know, relationships are like this jar. She says to her, when someone supports you or is kind to you or you share something with them and it remains private, that means you put marbles in their jar. However, when people are mean-spirited, disrespectful, when they share your personal information, marbles come out of the jar. She says, does that make sense? And her daughter's like, I've got marble jar friends. Do you have marble jar friends? You see, 
as we navigate the complexity of relationships, even inside of the church, I agree with Brown that there is this danger that can happen in our hearts. We can lump everyone together. Everyone here is good. Everyone's bad. But the truth is we all need discernment. And one thing that I've come to the realization of as a pastor is you can't treat relationships by just handing people one marble. Oh, I've seen this so many times. Oh, one slight, one hurt, even one misunderstanding. And it's like, you're dead to me now. You hurt me. So now you've just lost all your marbles. Let me say this. When you refuse to give other people marbles, you've lost your marbles. That's why Paul is getting so real in this passage. He's saying, bear with one. Do you know what it means to bear with someone? It means I actually know that you're not safe with my secrets, so I don't share that level of transparency with you. But it also says, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, I can't start distinguishing people when it comes to forgiveness. I can bear with people, but I have to forgive other, everyone. Imagine if Jesus only handled, handed you one marble. Where would you be today? I mean, I can't tell you, I've lost my marbles so many times. And he keeps handing me more marbles. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Grace. Grace. We talked about this last week with the community, right? We said grace leads with yes. And inside the church, grace keeps handing marbles. Grace learns to look beyond hurt. Grace forgives. And there's glory in this. When I was first entering into ministry in my young 20s, I was actually a, a, a director of music for a church, and this church, the first church I ever served in, is going through something pretty ugly that they used to call the worship wars. Anybody remember those? No one wants to raise their hand? Okay. Contemporary versus traditional. Thick community is messy because we develop strong preferences within the local church. And here I am, a total naive moron when it comes to all of these dynamics. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to put my guitar on. I'm going to sing some contemporary songs. I'm going to mix in some hymns. It's going to make everybody in the room happy. Do you think I was pretty good? No, no, I wasn't. But I was trying. The head elder of this church pulls me into the senior pastor's office after a service and says, those hymns that you are playing on the guitar, you are desecrating them. Sounds like garbage. I'm sitting there like, well, tell me what you really think. And I wanted to take his one marble and boot it across the room. <laughs> you know how God sometimes gives you that wisdom in a moment that's beyond you? Oh, I couldn't have gotten here at 20. 
But I'm looking at this guy and I'm coming to the realization in this moment even that this is bigger than me. He's not even mad at me. I'm just the tip of the spear. He's actually mourning change right now. Do you know how painful it is to change? It hurts. I mean, we're even experiencing that right now as a local church. We're stepping into what is called big adaptive change in a project like this and an initiative like this. And it hurts. It's hard. This man is hurting because he's mourning this this church worship that he's experienced all of his life. And he had precious moments with Jesus, with these hymns in this worship service. Now, did it give him the right to be nasty at me? Well, no. But I've said a lot of things I regret over the years. So what happens when we give people more than one marble? Well, we come to the realization that even bad moments don't define who a person is. You know, this same man, um, I go back and I revisit this church quite often, and he is often the first man at the door waiting for me. He hugs me, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, I love you with tears in his eyes. And he texts me all the time and he says, I'm so proud of who you are because you're following Jesus. So what we have here is a good man who had bad moments. I've had bad moments. You've had bad moments. What's the key to all of this? Well, Paul says in Colossians 3.14, the key is love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We go to 1 Peter, same admonition. Keep loving one another earnestly, since what does love do? It covers a multitude of sins. Church, when you really do this thick community thing, when you embrace one another as family, you are entering into the very glory of what Jesus wanted for us. He wants his church to be a radical place of love that expresses itself in thick community. He said this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. This, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I love this definition of fellowship. It says, fellowship is not just believing the same things as others. You got that? It's not just believing the same things as others but joining with them to invest in everything we are and have in the great project to which God has called us to in Christ. Friends, that is thick community. Now, if this is like so predominant in scripture, if this is placed on such a high level in scripture, don't you think that we should place a high premium on it as a church? I've been thinking about my life with this. 
you know, I'm like so guilty of saying I'm busy or I'm tired. I don't have any more margin. Maybe I've got everything wrong. Maybe I need to go back into my calendar and say, I've got to make time for this because I can't like just fit this into a one-hour window. It's thick community. It's a thick relationship with a thick web of people. Maybe that's why things like small groups have so much glory in them. And sitting in other people's houses and eating their good cooking, or maybe sometimes not so good, but just reveling in the reality that we get to be together. It's when we're sharing tears over the things that break someone else's heart and we're laughing together until it hurts in the stomach. Do you think that perhaps if God places such a high premium on this, that perhaps we should incorporate this in our own space as a church? And I keep coming back to this quote from Winston Churchill. He says, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. So if you want to say as a church, we value family, we value relationships, it would be important for your space to reflect that. Uh, God seems to indicate this in scripture that space matters. I'm looking in the Old Testament and I'm thinking, why is it that there are chapters devoted to the construction of the tabernacle and the temple? Well, he knows how we are. Why, why do we shape our homes the way we do? Why did we think creatively in our homes about our family room and our dining room? Is it just so we can have more rooms in our house? No. We're making space for relationship. And don't you think if that's important in the home, that it makes sense in the household of God? You know, this is the story that I want us to tell. I want us to tell people who it's their first time here, I want to say to them, we thought of you in advance. That's how much you matter to us. You belong here. You matter. We want you to become part of our family. I want to say to one another that there is glory in spending time together. I want to create space where people can talk for five minutes which then moves into 10-minute conversations, which moves into one-hour conversations, which just moves into us knowing one another. That's the kind of story I want to tell as a church. Jesus said, these are my mother and brother and sisters. This is my family. And the same thing is true of every local church. And that's why I think it's so valuable to invest in us. Let me pray for us right now. Lord, as we think about what we've heard from your word this morning, it turns everything upside down in some ways. Uh, you've reoriented our universe. You've placed Jesus at the center. He is Lord. Everything spins around him. You've taken our really small circle of community and you have expanded it to a place where there's people walking through the doors of this church that I never knew I needed and yet I'm so thankful they're here.
We thank you for this glorious community that you are creating here at 824 Main Street. And we want more. We want more for it. So do the work that only your spirit can do in us. We pray this in Jesus' name.